0: So this is the second week in Advent, and welcome uh, to the, the story. It is a great story. One of the things that I um, <clears throat> have desired to do this this uh, year in Advent, if you were, were here last week, you remember we were in Isaiah 9, this week we're in Isaiah 11, and we're going to spend the rest of our Advent uh, season, just the next two weeks, in Isaiah because I believe Isaiah is a key transition point back from some knowledge of the New Testament into uh, the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is Isaiah covers a, uh, a large uh, section of the redemptive plan of God and the, the story with Israel and how she rebelled against him. And by, that, by examining that story, we can kind of, it's, it's a, if you will, a decoder ring. Uh, there are phrases in the New Testament, and they are veiled, and and they are sometimes clear, but most of the time they require contextual understanding of the story. And these passages that we read today, First Kings nine and Isaiah eleven, these passages are intimately connected to our celebration of Jesus Christ as king of the the Jews. When Jesus Christ was born, he was born as a king, and Isaiah in this passage is prophesying about that birth. Jesus didn't become a king through his own usurpation of the throne. He was God's king who God installed, and he was king at his birth. Now, the, the one... You know, whether that means anything to you or not is directly related to whether you understand the need for a righteous king. Uh, In my uh, earlier series uh, last year on Christ in the Old Testament, one of the things that I tried to say over and over again is Jesus is the better and greater Adam. Whereas the first Adam died, the second Adam, the true. Uh, image of humanity, Jesus Christ himself, succeeded, right? And so there are these ideas that there are types or symbols of Christ in the Old Covenant and then fulfillment. But every single type that we ever examined, we always noted how it was necessary for Jesus to come. Those were just a foreshadowing and they were not enough. Today we're going to look at how the kings of Israel were not enough and why Jesus' birth as a king of the Jews is precious, And it is by being the king of the Jews that God intends to install him as king over the whole earth, and we're going to look at that today. One of the most uh, neglected concepts in the Old Testament is the root of Jesse, Jesus being the fulfillment of God's kingly line that he had installed. Uh, If you remember, Saul had been installed as king, and Saul immediately rebelled against God. And that was just foreshadowing of what all the kings of Israel were going to do. And then God rejects Saul's kingdom, uh, kingship, and then he installs David and makes a promise to David's father, Jesse, so if you don't know why we, you know, why we sang about Jesse and the root of David this morning, that's why it's it's so that we can begin to play with these ideas and learn these words. So in our reading today, I want to I want to cover these things, covenant and exile, that is God made a covenant with the kings and yet the the people of Israel rebelled. Last week we talked about this extensively, but we talked about it as the people's idolatry. Today I want to demonstrate an idea of this idea of federation or that there was a representative for the people. We're going to look at this stump that is budding. It says in in this passage, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you understand stumps, they're usually left after you cut down a tree. And so this is a beautiful uh, image and, and and story that God's weaving together. We're going to look at how Jesus Christ's reign as king is not like other kings. We're going to look at how his reign actually is a recreative or a reactive force on the earth in God's restoration of his uh, humanity and his world. We're going to look at the ingathering of the exiles that God faithfully promises beforehand to do, even though he gives them a blessing and a curse at the same time. If, you, if you'll follow my law, you'll be my people, you'll be a special treasure. If you don't, then you'll be spewed out of the land. The land will spew it out of its mouth, um, if you will, and then finally we 're going to look at bringing this all together in how we watch and wait for Christmas and the return of the Lord advent as you as you um, celebrate it some some people because Advent is kind of new to you, you may think that it 's just kind of a, a church season because it 's just poetically nice. But it's my opinion that in Isaiah 11, the reason the church set up Advent to both celebrate the anticipation of Jesus' initial coming and to look forward to his final coming at the end of the age is because that's how the prophets set it up. It's not just rhetorical devices and parallelism and nicety for the sake of language. Isaiah 11 in this passage that we looked at today is talking about a future fulfillment of Jesus Christ's reign as king over all the world. And so that is how we celebrate Advent. It's not just because we want to or, or think it's cool that, you know, Jesus came once and he'll come again and there's a lot of literary devices there. It's the way that the scriptures present it. So... The great and merciful God in, in 1 Kings uh, 9, he comes to Solomon. Before, he, before that, he came to David, and he He makes a covenant that there's always going to be a descendant on the throne. David, you will never lack a man on the throne if you keep my promises. Just like every other covenant, this promise, it comes with blessing and curses. When you get married, you... you uh, It's wonderful that our anniversary is today because I have an excuse to reference marriage. When you get married, there are blessings and there are curses. If you are unfaithful to your spouse, you will experience the worst personal disaster, probably apart from the death of all your children instantaneously. Your life will be completely ruined if you are unfaithful in your marriage covenant. Everybody looks at marriage and they see these white dresses and people in suits and there's flowers and cake and celebration because marriage is a covenant and God loves covenant. But covenants all come with blessings and curses, business contracts. If you do this and deliver by this day, you'll get this money. If you don't, you'll be sued and we'll go to war in the courts. These are, you know, when you sign up for Verizon, you know, you if you pay your bill, you will receive this service, and if you don't or terminate early, you'll be hit with a fee. This is the way that covenants work. It is a principle of God's world. Covenants come with blessings and curses, and Yahweh comes to David and Solomon, the house of Jesse, and he gives them an amazing covenant. He says, if you follow me, if you will be my my king, if you'll rule over Israel on my behalf... You will never lack a man on the throne. That is the, that is the holy grail, as it were, of every single dynasty throughout all literature across the entire earth. Why do kings divorce their wives against the church in the case of Henry? Because he couldn't have a male heir. Why do people go to war in all of antiquity, all of Greek literature, all of the mythological stories from every country? They go to war because of either a rival king asserting his authority to take the throne or because somebody can't find a a son. And what God does on his own initiative to come to David and Solomon is say, David and Solomon, I know that you've heard the promises that were made at Exodus, and I know that I've just installed you as a ruler in my place over Israel, but you know what? The kingship, the kingdom, is not on your own. You don't have to worry about establishing your own line. I'll establish it for you, if you'll follow me. But that's the problem. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children— And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but as a modern American, this hits me like a ton of bricks. We live in a democratic republic or a federal republic, and we install leaders, we call them senators and representatives, to go to a body called Congress and make laws and pass budgets and things like this. We also vote for people who then in turn vote for the president and uh, for the person who's running for president to be installed as president and vice president together. And then the presidents and Congress both have to uh, approve the Supreme Court nominations. However, in our country, we don't really think if President Obama has personal failures, they will kind of spill down to me. Are you feeling at all the tension in this? Jesus said, or Yahweh comes and says to David and to Solomon, if you obey me, then I'll bless your kingship. I'll I'll bless your kingdom. Your line will never lack a man on the throne. And then he says, but if you don't, I'm going to curse Israel. Just like... Paul argues in the New Testament, just as sin entered through one man and spread to the whole earth, so also life enters through Christ and is made available to all. This is the idea of a biblical concept called federalism, that there is one person, the representative of the people through whom God relates. And this is the exact way by which you can enter into the life of Christ through faith. It is this mechanism. But this mechanism is, is also, you know, uh, sort of scary. Solomon and David, they break God's law. David had established the greatest military victory and had almost completely defeated the remaining inhabitants of the land. What had, God told, uh, what had God already told to Moses and Joshua? You're going to come into the land and dispossess it and take the evil nations who continually do evil and wipe them out. What God has done through the flood in in restoring creation through uh, the flood at Noah's time, so also He wishes to do with His people over a small section of the earth, namely the the land of Canaan. but those people don't obey God's law, and it's the surrounding surrounding neighborhoods that we lost uh, that we looked at last week, and those surrounding countries and people groups are the ones who eventually lead Israel into idolatry. In the same way, this is what happens with Solomon. David prepares Solomon, supposedly the son of David, a, a person who was trained by David and prepared by David, and yet Solomon breaks God's law. He starts well, we look at it in this passage, but his love for his many foreign wives and their idols turn him away from God completely. So after Solomon, every single king that comes for, for, for eight kings in a row before the kingdoms are divided, these, these people, they break God's law, and Israel moves further and further into rebellion against Yahweh's law and into destruction. Now this, as the people of Israel, is devastating for us. We need a king who can complete God's law. We need a king who can, who can live on the throne forever. See, there's a double need in this situation. Both Yahweh needs to find a person who will be able to reign on the throne forever and the people need a righteous king. But all we have to choose from are dead men. And this is what it means when we come to this idea of this stump. By the time Isaiah receives this prophecy, this is hundreds of years if you um, remember your uh, you know, studies. But this idea that that there's going, to be come, uh, there's going to come forth a man to reign on the throne, this is preposterous by the time that, uh, that Isaiah receives this prophecy. And so, he hears by the Spirit, not by sight. Over seven different kings had met an unnatural demise by the time that Isaiah received this prophecy. Now, again, it's hard for us because we're Americans and we have a democratic republic, but this would be like receiving a prophecy that God would finally bring revival to the United States after seven presidents had been killed in office in a row through terrible warlike means. This would be an absolutely devastating situation. And it's in this context, in this darkness, that God speaks to Isaiah about the coming king. So after prophesying about the Babylonian exile earlier in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah then receives this, this prophecy, this oracle, about the shoot of Jesse. There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All these previous kings, after David, never bore fruit. It was a steady fall of losing land losing moral uh, purity, breaking God's covenants, and moving further and further into idolatry. And it it was just like in the time of Judges. What would happen in the time of Judges? The people would repent, and they'd cry out to God, and they'd ask for deliverance, and then he'd send them a deliverer, and then after that deliverer dies a generation later, the people of Israel again turn after foreign gods. This is exactly what happens with the kings. Certain kings along the road, like Asa or Joash, they establish these reformations and, and get rid of the idols, but they don't ever wipe them out completely, and yet they return after they die. Their sons don't take up their mantle as a reformer, and then the people of Israel go off into sin again. This is a terrible trap that the people of Israel are in. This covenant that they made with Yahweh through at, at the time of Exodus saying, all these things we will surely do instead of saying, God, we need your grace to do. This is that they're now under this law. That's what Paul means when he talks about being under the law in the book of Galatians. They were trapped. They couldn't meet their end of the bargain. And so Yahweh is going to demonstrate himself as gracious. Aaron's rod in number 17, it buds, right? What, what is a rod? A rod is a dead piece of wood. What had Aaron done with that rod before? If you remember in the story of Exodus, the Egyptian magicians, which is an awesome phrase, Egyptian magicians, they come and what do they do? They cast down their rods and turn them into snakes. You think Harry Potter's cool, they turn them into snakes. And what what do Moses and Aaron do? They come and they take their their staff of authority, their rod, and they throw their rods down. And what do their snakes do? They eat the other snakes. Now, that's pretty cool. I know that there's like Star Wars Episode Seven coming out, but I'd rather see Moses battling with serpent snake staffs things. I mean, that's amazing. And what is the staff? So the people of God grumble against this person called Aaron who just had demonstrated and Moses as well, who both used their rods to depart, to part the waters. And the book of Psalms says that God parted the waters. And yet we know in Exodus that Moses hit the water with his staff and it parted. And so this idea of federalism is becoming more and more clear. The people of Israel revolt against Aaron's priesthood. And they say, who are you to be, act as a mediator between us and God? And so what does God do? God tells Moses to tell all the people of Israel to have the leader of their tribe or the father in their group take his staff and, and place it before the Ark of the Testimony. And the one which buds, the one which produces little new life like springtime, the one whose rod buds is my chosen vessel. Aaron's staff, a dead piece of wood that previously he had turned into a snake, buds with new life. This is what it means when Isaiah is saying the root of Jesse, the stump which was left after God cleared the kingdom, is going to bring forth new life. What happened? After the Babylonian exile, the kingship, the kingdom, the line of David was removed from the throne. There was no longer a king in Israel who could trace his lineage back to David. All hope was lost. God's promises are on the line, and his faithfulness is being called into question. And Isaiah receives this oracle. After saying that Israel is about to be wiped out by the Babylonians and taken out of the land, fulfilling what God had promised in 1 Kings 9 and in Exodus, that the land itself would spew you out of its mouth, after this and in this context, in this darkness, God says, but it will come about at a certain time that there will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is resurrection after death. That is spring after winter, and so Jesse's branch is going to spring forth a shoot, and this shoot will bear fruit, and it will reveal the true king of Israel over and against the false king Herod. That's why Herod wanted to kill Christ because he he had his uh court readers. Uh, read and search out the the story once the Magi came and he told the Magi, come and tell me where, where they are. And then the Magi said, sure, we'll do it. And then they didn't do it. That's why Herod wanted to destroy Christ because he knew Christ was a threat to his kingdom. It, he didn't just get inspired to kill people. he He wanted to maintain his line, just like every other king. And so this is what it means for Christ to be born. Unlike the other sons of Jesse, David, and Solomon, this king will bear fruit. He's not going to be a lifeless branch who has sons who turn away. This is going to be a king who lives on the throne forever. And as we looked at last week in our Advent reading, he will be the everlasting father of a line of kings and priests. That's what the New Testament's about. And it's in that context. Without seeing black behind a diamond, you don't know what you're buying. You don't know if it's quartz or silicone or polished rubies that are clear. The darkness of the failure of humanity and Israel's uh, idolatry in the midst of the law and the king's failures themselves is the back uh, black background to the beautiful gem of Christmas. That's why we take this time in Advent. You know, it, it, I don't enjoy being uh, depressing or think that, you should beat yourself up. I'm not trying to preach asceticism. What I'm trying to preach is that Jesus Christ saved the day in every way, and without seeing the problem, he's not as precious. He's not as sweet. So, whereas David was a man after God's own heart, this king will be filled with God's very spirit. Though the spirit came upon Saul, Saul grieved the spirit, but this spirit will descend on this king and remain. What did John the Baptist say? Uh, say he was told by the Spirit of God. On him you see the Spirit of God descend on and remain. He is the Lamb of God. So this is what it means, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the counsel and might, the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are the attributes by which Jesus Christ will live his life and rule his kingdom. The kings of Israel, they coasted on this spiritual legacy from David and it it resulted in them deciding terrible, terrible things like making covenants with the people in the land who God had told them not to make covenant with, like deciding matters that they had no authority, like stealing cities from other tribes and letting the tribes go to war with each other when God had called them, called Israel originally, not just the New Testament believers, had called Israel to be a kingdom of priests. The the Levites were just seen as the priests of the priest, not the priests alone in the land. And this king is going to undo all of those terrible mistakes. He's not going to judge according to his own eyes, but he's going to be prophetic in judgment. Isaiah 11, 3 through 4, the first half, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I think it's a beautiful thing that my dad earlier in the Sunday school hour had mentioned Jesus Christ's uh, refutation of the Pharisees when they bring the woman caught in adultery. And he mentioned that that was a gift of the Spirit by which Jesus diffused the situation. This is what Jesus is doing as he's living his life, going around Israel and preparing it for the new, the new creation that he's going to do. And so, Jesus is not going to live like the other kings, a beautiful glimpse on the, the the radar foreshadowing the wisdom with which Christ, the king of the universe reigns, is when Solomon, the wise one, he has two women come to him. If you remember the story, it's beautiful. What does he do? He tells the, the women they're fighting about uh, babies and they're saying, this woman stole my baby and the other woman saying, this is actually my baby. What does Solomon do? He says to them, here's how I'll decide. Cut the baby in half. Give one to each of you. Now, what did he what what if, he didn't obviously want to do that. He did that to reveal which one of them was the true mother. The true mother responded in mercy and grace. That's the kind of uh, you know, non-fleshly understanding of wisdom and grace that Jesus Christ will reign with. David and his his line never established the kingdom of, in Israel. They were never able to wipe out the nations that that were pestering them. If you remember in Judges over and over again, the Philistines, the Moabites, the various Canaanites and all of the, of the other ites, the Hittites and the Jebusites, and I don't even remember who the ites were. They were constantly pestering the people of God. And David, he achieved the greatest military victory, but he didn't finish the job. He set up Solomon to do it, but Solomon didn't finish the job and actually lost a ton of land. But this king is not like the previous kings. Beyond ruling just Israel, this king is going to rule over all the nations. This is a massive expanse of the covenant. God, God said to Israel, you'll be my people, and he intended to restore the earth through them. But when he chose kings, he says, you'll be my king over Israel. And now Isaiah sees not only is this king who will come from the shoot of Jesse, Not only is this king going to rule over Israel perfectly, he's going to rule over the whole earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of loins. We don't have time to get into it, but if you ever look at Revelation 1, that's Isaiah 11.5. This rod of his mouth, of Jesus' mouth, is nothing other than the words that he speaks, which are spirit and life, the gospel as it goes forth from him and the apostles into into all of Israel and the surrounding countries. And the breath that Jesus breathes, which slays the wicked, is foretelling about the Holy Spirit, who destroys the wicked and yet recreates them at the same time and makes them dead to sin. Although they were evil, now they're dead to sin and alive to God. This is the restorative Holy Spirit sending that Jesus does when he says to his disciples in John 20, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is no mere man. Uh, You and I don't go around telling people, "Ah, receive the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is given this task. The spirit of God descends on him and remains and his breath becomes the spirit of God. It, 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 it has the same effect. It's in concert with the way the Holy Spirit's moving. And so this reign of this king, Jesus, is not limited to a geopolitical or taxes or military. This reign is totalizing. What do I mean by totalizing? All worldviews in some sense are totalizing. And that means the worldview that you have affects everything in your world. If you are a Christian, your Christianity will begin to affect everything. It may not be complete. It may be, you might be working out the details, but it, over time, your Christianity, as you are informed by the Word of God and live by, by the Spirit of God, it will begin to mess up everything in your life. It will eventually kill out all remaining habitual sin and a lack of understanding in scriptures, and this is this is the goal of of a worldview, right? In the same way, this king's reign is not limited to just geopolitical issues, where the land boundaries are, who goes to war and who defends, how to structure the army, what the the weights and measures of the country should be, what the law is. This is what the king of Israel had had uh, been tasked with, but Isaiah is talking about a king who's going to, uh, as Isaiah eleven six 6 says, uh, create a world in which the untamed beasts are now residing with these tame, docile creatures. The wolf, what is a wolf? A terrible thing that goes around eating other things. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Now, this full extent of Jesus's Recreative or reactive kingship has not come fully. It's come in a limited way, and yet there is a great foretelling that Isaiah is doing. <clears throat> he goes on to say in Isaiah 11 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. What Isaiah is prophesying, what Yahweh is prophesying through Isaiah, is a time in which there will be no war on the earth, and that all Everything that goes on in his holy mountain will be peace and, and uh, justice. It, there won't be any inequity. There won't be any violence. And so we know that this is the end goal. This has not already come come to about. Uh, if you want, need any news of that, just go watch CNN or Fox for a week. There's wars everywhere still. And so in a real way, we know plainly that Isaiah is not just talking about Jesus's first arrival, but the final result of his reigning on the throne. This is the end goal of Jesus Christ's reign, the conversion of his enemies and the restoration of all things on the earth. So after Isaiah begins to uh, talk about this lofty vision of the final goal of the kingdom, he returns for a moment and starts to talk about the day of, of the Root of Jesse. In that day, the Root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place be glorious. Now, again, uh, what happens in the book of John that that sends Jesus on his way to the crucifixion? Uh, in John 12, some it's... Uh, the disciples come up to Jesus. Actually, one disciple says to another, hey, there's some Greeks. And then that disciple goes and tells Jesus, hey, some Greeks want to, sh- want to meet you. They're coming to inquire. The nations are coming to inquire of Christ. And what does Jesus do? He says, this is now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows that he's about to be coronated as king after the, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and that it's time. It is time. God is setting things in motions. The nations are beginning to seek after Christ and inquire of him. And this is where Jesus goes after he ascends. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Notice it says in that day. It's not talking about the days which the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and et cetera, et cetera. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is what God is doing. God, who through Isaiah in the earlier chapters of Isaiah had prophesied the exile of the Israelites into the land of Babylon and then scattered throughout the nations, promises a second gathering of them. And this is what comes about in the New Testament. After the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on those who had gathered from all the corners of earth to be in Jerusalem in Acts 2. If you were here with us during Pentecost, this was what we were saying, that God was gathering his people. Why were they in Jerusalem? They were there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And who goes to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles but Hebrews? These are Hellenistic Jews or Jews who had converted to Judaism, but even though they were nationally Greeks, and they're in Jerusalem at the time, and God is faithful to his promises and says, I will gather you again from all the nations. Not only had he restored Israel from the exile of Babylon, which comes about uh, in Ezra and the book of Daniel, He also says, a second time, I will extend my hand. Not only that, Jesus the Messiah sends his 12 apostles and disciples out into all the earth to go after not just the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered, but also the nations themselves, who after falling away from God through the Tower of Babel had gone off into the earth in blindness. This is exactly what God is about doing when he sends his son into the earth. He's not just focused on setting up Israel the right way, and he's not just focused on you having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is focused on those things, but it's within a larger, more beautiful picture of the restoration of all creation, not just your private Christianity on Sunday. It needs to extend to everything, the way we live, how we treat people in business, how we set up our families. One of the things that I'm terribly ashamed of uh, in my marriage is that we have not been consistent because I've failed as a husband in this way. We have not consistently had family worship, daily devotions around the mealtime or a time where we pray and and read the scriptures together, because I think that's just consistent with what God said to his people, the word of of God, the word of the law, it's not going to depart from your mouth. And yet, I spend so much of my time leading my family of, of two uh, not talking about God's law and not caring what he has to say. And thanks be to God, he's helping us change that. But I believe that this is what Isaiah is speaking about. Not just the, the land of Israel, not just a, a beautiful king who reigns over Israel, but a king who rules over the whole earth. Again, I said this last week, but what is Jesus, what is the the sign that's put over his uh, cross as he's dying for our sins? Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. That is what Jesus comes to be, but not just the King of the Jews, the King of the whole world. This gospel that goes out from his mouth, the rod which strikes the nations, is nothing other than the gospel sent by, by the apostles. Each apostle talks about the gospel in ways like Colossians 1, Romans 1, Romans 10, as the gospel which has gone out into the whole earth. Now, don't uh, buy into the Mormon theory that Jesus, after a little bit of time, came to the Native Americans because he said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about the dispersion of the uh, Jews. He's not talking about the Native Americans. When the Bible uses totalizing language, like there will be, uh, the gospel has gone out out into the whole world, it's talking about it in two ways. Jesus Christ, when he died and accomplished the atonement and broke the power of sin and death, Paul in, in the book of Ephesians says he tore down the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ's death on the cross Took place in Jerusalem, but it had a like a big bang, but not a big bang. It had a cosmic ripple effect throughout all of creation, and it tore down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so, this idea that the gospel has gone out into the, the whole earth—it's a cosmic way, but it also is a representative way. What what Paul's saying is because of the fervency with which the the Holy Spirit has made us zealous we've gone out into all of the nations. And of course, that's not talking about North America by the end of 70 AD. But it's talking about the whole earth as in a representative sample from every tribe, tongue, and nation had begun to hear. And it was kind of like, uh, remember when Jesus sends out the 70 in Luke uh, 11 or 12? He says, what, what happens? They come back and they say to him, Jesus, even the demons submit in your name. And what does he say? This totally mystical experience. He, it's like Jesus is kind of like here and they're talking to him and he's just like, I beheld Satan fall from the sky like lightning. Because what had, what had happened? The, the apostles, the disciples were going around in Israel and destroying demonic influence on believers' lives. And that tore down what Paul says, the God of the, of the spirit of the air. The Satan himself, and so it's kind of like that. Satan had fallen to the earth like lightning, and yet Paul says we still wrestle against powers of darkness in the high places. So in one way, the gospel goes out into all the earth; in another way, it's a representative sim- sample. But just as God delivered e- Israel out of Egypt, this king is going to bring his people out of out of exile. At the end of Isaiah, in this passage, in Isaiah eleven sixteen, it says, There will be a highway from Assyria. He's talking about how they get back from exile in the book of Daniel. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. What Isaiah is prophesying is this king will act and live in the same way that Yahweh has. If you ever need to be able to convince uh, a person of Hebrew faith or, you know, a Jewish person of Jesus' fulfillment of the promises to God, to God, you won't be able to use the New Testament. And you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to say, Isaiah eleven sixteen. 16... Just as there was a highway to Assyria, so also this was done in the same way that God made a way for Israel to come out of Egypt. What he's doing is he's saying that this king acts and lives like God himself. Ergo, he is God. Jesus Christ, the king of the whole world, is Yahweh himself. The covenant maker God is his own surety, that is confirmation of a debt or promise, and he also redeems his people from their failures. So God makes this covenant, and this is what I want to press home to you in in creation covenant and exile and redemption language, is God makes a promise to these kings that they can't fulfill. And Paul says God can't deny himself. God has sworn by himself since there's nothing other than, Uh, by which he can promise. And these kings, they can't follow God. They're unable. And the story proves there was, you know, like 12 kings after Solomon and none of them ever followed God the right way. They never kept God's law. And so what does God do? He says, I'm faithful to the promises that I make. And not only that, I'm also going to be faithful to them in such a way that I myself will be the fulfillment of their end of the bargain. That is the gospel through exile return language. Jesus Christ himself will come and be the king. God is supremely gracious to make the covenant in the first place. And yet when his people rebel, he blows our minds with his mercy and grace and says, not only did I promise you in the first place, but I'm going to reach here and fulfill your side of the bargain as well. That's what Jesus Christ coming in the flesh means to us. He accomplished what we could not. What we could not do was ever find a king who would be righteous to live and to serve God in the way that he wanted. So as Christians who believe the whole world word is the inspired word of God, we must see God's faithfulness to his promises revealed. It's my opinion that most of the promises throughout the whole scripture have been fulfilled. I believe that we take portions of Daniel and the book of Revelation and extrapolate like, rip them out of their context and say revelations about the end of the age when revelation was written by a person who lived at a time to some people who lived at a time and it continues forward some meaning but most of God's promises have been fulfilled except for one and that is the restoration of all things which comes right before the return of his son Jesus that's what we celebrate in Advent as we anticipate Christ's birth, we know that he is born to be the king of the Jews, but also the king over the whole earth. And yet he reigns even today, but not fully. There are still those who are his enemies who haven't been slain with the gospel of mercy yet. At the same time that we anticipate Christ's birth, we must remember how the people of God waited in exile. They didn't wait uh, totally in futility. God was faithful to them, and he brought them out of Assyria the first time, and he was faithful to those who weren't able to make it back in the return that Ezra uh, you know, uh, and Nehemiah established. He went and got them. What is the great song, The Church's One Foundation? The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the Word what does it say about what god did in sending his son from heaven from heaven he came and sought her that's that's what we celebrate just as israel was not out of babylon we are are not yet out of this world we're in this world but we're not of it and so we anticipate his return. We eagerly anticipate the life of the world to come, as we said in the uh, creed this morning, and that is what faith-filled Advent celebrations are. As strangers in this land, we don't live in a comfortable way. We're not entering into Christmas so that we can make sure our relatives buy all the stuff we really want. That's not the end goal of our Christmas celebration. The end goal is not despairing and being sure that just as he came the first time, he'll come the second. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, wor- wor- wonderful word. Uh, we, we thank you for stammering speech and uh, just the simple ability to even share some of your goodness. God, we do ask that you would press upon our hearts and our minds these uh, grand narrative themes, that we would see uh, each book of the Bible in concert showing forth your beauty and glory. God, we love the cross and we love what you accomplished for us by sending your son with the end aim of going to the cross. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be the end of the story for us, that we wouldn't just see Jesus dying on the cross and taking our, our penalty, but we would see him raising uh, and ascending and sending the Holy Spirit to send the gospel, his word, that the rod of his mouth, which goes out to strike and rule over the nations. God, we pray that we would see the whole story and that that would become for us a way by which we worship you. That it wouldn't just be literature for literature's sake, but that through the hard work of studying your word, with engaging our minds and our spirits and our hearts in the story, we would be able to see your promises fulfilled. God, I I pray that you would give us times of, of precious mourning when we see things like in 1 Kings when it says Israel will become a byword among the peoples. And Lord, that that mourning and weeping would be turned into exaltation and joy at the arrival of your Son. Lord, I pray that this Christmas we would divorce ourselves from the spirit of the age which says Christmas is about giving gifts alone, and that we would really truly Worship your son in Jesus' mighty name, amen.